6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 33 through 36. And they roasted the Passover with fire according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings saw they in pots and in cauldrons and in pans and divided them speedily among all the people. And afterward, they made ready for themselves and for the priests because the priests of the sons of Aaron were busied in the, burning, uh, the offering of burnt offerings and uh, the fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, uh, the sons of Aaron. And the singers of the sons of Asaph were in their place according to the commandment of David and Asaph and Heman and Jedithan, the king's seer, and the porters waited at every gate that they might not depart from their service for their brethren, the Levites, prepared for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings upon the altar of the Lord according to the commandment of the king Josiah and the children of Israel that were present kept the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread seven days. So Passover technically is that one day, following day's feast of unleavened bread that goes on for seven days. And those seven days include, depending on the calendar, the Sunday in there, the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, is the Feast of the First Fruits. So those are all generally, those three feasts, the three spring feasts of Israel, lumped together, often called Passover connotatively. But in any case, there it is. And so there was no Passover like to that kept in Israel for the days of Samuel the prophet. That's quite a statement. There was no Passover like, there was no Passover like to that kept in, the day, in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet. Neither did all the kings of Israel keep such a Passover Josiah kept. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel that were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah was this Passover kept. Big deal. Okay. And after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, the king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Now let's back up a second here. Sudden change of subject here. We finished with the Passover thing. In about 609 B.C., Assyria, the, the empire that had ruled for so many centuries, became weak and lost a lot of her empire, especially a city to the south called Babylon. In a few years, that city, will, under uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a son that was a very sharp general, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he becomes very, very effective. And he's able to not only free Babylon from Assyria, but in effect to become the dominant empire in a matter of a few years. So that's all starting here. So Assyria is showing some weakness. It's fragmentation. Okay. Nineveh itself uh, fell in, in uh, about three years earlier. Uh, so Assyria is in trouble in a sense. The capital Nineveh had fallen in about 612. And so they concentrated their, their forces around Haran and Karshemish in the upper Euphrates. Now, this attack by Pharaoh Necho against Assyria is understandable. He's, he's getting strong in power. Assyria's starting to crumble. He's going there to strengthen himself. That makes sense. But why is Josiah going out against Pharaoh Necho? 
Assyria is the traditional enemy of Israel. You would think that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. You would think that if he's going to do anything, he would be helping, helping Pharaoh Necho go against the Assyrians. That's what he's doing. He, uh, he's going against Pharaoh Necho. And this puzzles Pharaoh Necho, as you'll see in a minute. One of the questions you have to ask yourself, why is Josiah going against Pharaoh Necho? There's a very obvious answer that everybody misses. But in any case, at this point, it's an enigma. So verse 21. So Necho says, for, he sent ambassadors to him. That's Pharaoh Necho sending ambassadors to Josiah, to Josiah. He sent ambassadors to him saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. Get this now. For God commanded me to make haste. Forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Wow. Pharaoh Necho is telling Josiah, What are you doing? I'm doing what God told me to do. That's Pharaoh Necho's claim. You might say, well, that may be just an empty boast of his. No, the next verse is going to underscore something. Notice what Pharaoh Necho is saying. He said, for God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God, who is with me, that he destroy thee not. That's what Necho is telling Josiah. You got the picture? The more you study it, it's really strange. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him but disguised himself that he might fight with him. And hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God. Those are words of the chronicler. That's not a quote of Necho here. This is a, a comment by the chronicler. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself that he might fight with him. And he hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. How on earth would Pharaoh Necho hear instructions from the mouth of God? Any guesses? From the Ark of the Covenant. Right on. We'll get to that. The archer shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. Okay. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot, put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died. And he was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. So Josiah's death is a tragic, tragic, national, uh, it's a national tragedy. And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel, and behold, they are written in the lamentations. By the way, it's not, that's probably not the book of lamentations by Jeremiah, but an equivalent a uh, uh, product on this area. Now the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to that which was written in the law of the Lord, his deeds, first and last, behold, they are all written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Okay. I'm going to leave that for now. We're going to go to the final chapter of what happens after Josiah dies as far as the, uh, the southern kingdom's concerned. And that will finish Chronicles, but I've, I've saved a session to go back and unravel this mystery that I think will uh, fascinate you as we get into it. So let's just table Josiah and Necho for the moment and finish the, the Chronicle uh, uh, rendering here. So we're in chapter 36, the final days. We're going to go from Josiah and take a quick look at four kings, the final four rascals that, get, that bring the dynasty 
uh, in a sense, to, it, 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 it takes it right up to the Babylonian captivity. Chapter 36, verse 1, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Josiah had at least four sons, who, and the three of which became kings of Judah. And the first of these was not the oldest, incidentally, but was Jehoahaz, and he's a, he was an appointee by the people, really, after Josiah's death. And he remained in power for only three months, for reasons that aren't given. And uh, Necho dethroned him. He's strong enough that Necho's calling the shots here, and Pharaoh Necho dethroned him, levied on Judah a tax of 100 talents of silver and a talent of, of gold, as you'll see here. Jehoiaz was 20 and 3 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. The king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem, condemned the land in a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So that's uh, 33 tons of silver and about uh, you know, 75 pounds of, of gold. That's a lot of gold, even you know, especially today. But in any case, uh, the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and turned his name into Jehoiakim. So he, the king renames him, if you will. Shows you the power he had over all this. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. And Jehoiakim was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, bound him with feathers to carry him to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Actually, at a museum right across the, the uh, processional way. This is the, uh, the uh, deportation that probably took Daniel to Babylon. Um, Daniel and his three friends were taken captive. Um, so the Lord used Nebuchadnezzar to be his instrument here of, of judgment, if you will. And uh, so the, uh, there's obviously a lot more drama here than we need to get into detail here. But this is the first siege. Nebuchadnezzar had driven Egyptians out of Palestine by about 605 B.C. And that's when Daniel and his friends were deported. Jehoiakim had at first been loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, but after three years he rebelled. And about 602. That's in all 2 Kings 24. The chronicler, but not 2 Kings, reports that Jehoiakim was then bound with bronze shackles and taken to Babylon along with the sacred objects of the temple. So uh, this was the first of three sieges. The first siege starts the servitude of the nation. The third siege will be starts the desolations of Jerusalem. Both of these are 70 years long, but they're not coterminous. They're all 70 years exactly to the day, strangely. The, sea, the servitude of the nation starts with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's concluded by the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. And uh, the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar starts the desolations of Jerusalem, and it is terminated by the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which is the trigger for Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. So if you're studying prophecy precisely, uh, that's all worth getting into. I won't try to get into it all here. I was tempted to, but it'll take a hard time to develop all that. Uh, just tie, I just encourage you to tie that to your study of, uh, uh, your study of uh, Daniel, if you will. Now apparently Jehoiakim was released or escape from Babylon because he was given a dishonorable burial outside the gates of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 22. Now the acts, me, <clears throat> now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and his abominations which he did and that which was found in him, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. 
and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, Jehoiachin is also called Jeconiah. That causes a lot of confusion. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is the guy. He's called Jeconiah by Jeremiah, but it's the same guy. He's also called Jehoiachin. God is so upset by now that he says in Jeremiah 22.30, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, if you have a Jewish friend that, is, that knows his Tanakh, his scriptures, give him Jeremiah 22.30 and ask him, how do, you, how do you get a Messiah out of this? The Messiah has to come from the royal line, and now the royal line has a blood curse on it. Where do you go with that? Just leave that with him. Resolve. It turns out there's no way out of that box canyon except one. And that's a virgin birth. And that's the daughters of Zelophehad. So Jeconiah Je and Jehoiachin are the same guys, in effect. Now, we look at the genealogy in Luke. You remember, he starts with Adam. He goes down through Noah. We talked a lot about that before. Matthew goes from Abraham to David. And, of course, Luke's genealogy connects that from Noah down to... He get with, so the last part of Luke's genealogy from Abraham to David and Matthew is obviously identical. No problem there. But when you get to David, a different thing happened. And by the way, the last four, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David, you'll find encrypted in the, in the 38th chapter of Genesis in 49-letter intervals in chronological order and are also listed in the last chapter of Ruth. But moving on, the house of David, what happens here? Well, Matthew, of course, goes through the first surviving son of Bathsheba, Solomon, down through Rehoboam, and these very kings we've been talking about, until you get to Jehoiakim. We've got a problem there, because there's a curse, a blood curse on that line. And that line ends up with Joseph, who is the legal father, but not the blood father of Jesus Christ. Luke's a doctor. He's concerned about... Christ's humanity, and when he comes to David, he does it a left turn. He goes through the second surviving son of Bathsheba, Nathan, and he goes down through a genealogy by bloodline to Mary. And Heli is the father of Mary, but he's the father that adopts Joseph as a son because of the provisions of the daughters of Zelophehad. When you get to Salathiel and Zerubbabel, you wonder, well, how did they get in there? Because they also are in, this, they, the, they are in the bloodline See, they're, they're not carrying the bloodline of Jehoiachin. How does that come off? Well, Jeconiah and Chaltiel, the same wife, it was the duty of the... Um, there's a Levite marriage involved where the duty of the brother raises up seed to the son. To, and that goes to Zerubbabel, and on it goes. So uh, you can sort that out. We did that all... This is all by way of review when we got at this earlier. The Levite marriage comes from Levir, meaning husband's brother, and it's codified in the Torah in Deuteronomy 25. And Padiah raises up seed for Shaltiel, which leads to Zerubbabel as the seed of Padiah, but in the name of Shaltiel. He's not actually the bloodline of Shaltiel. And uh, Luke links Padiah to Neri, the blood descendant of David, because he's going through the wife, if you will, and her father. So, but in any case, uh, Zerubbabel's line in the Chronicler lists Zerubbabel's seven sons and one daughter. None of them appear in the genealogy, either Matthew or Luke. All of this is by way of review, if you recall, when we dealt with this earlier. And so, okay. The, this all built on the daughters of Zelophehad. The Torah had an exception on the rules of inheritance. It was requested by Zelophehad. He had five daughters. He requested that of Moses in Numbers 27. Moses goes to the Lord. The Lord says, make that exception. 
When you get to the days of Joshua, those five daughters come to Joshua, and indeed he checks the record in Joshua 17. He grants that inheritance. What most people don't recognize is the claims of Christ hang on that exception. Because in, when, that, when you had this situation, as long as the daughter, if there are no sons, if the daughter married within the tribe, the father of the bride adopted her husband as his son. And that happens in Ezra, Nehemiah, and a number of other places. And this anticipates the lineage of Christ because it is a way that the virgin birth lines up Christ to get of both the house and lineage of David. And so Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli. If you look at Luke 3.23, in the Greek, the word is nomizo, which means reckoned as by law. He's the son-in-law of Heli, not the son of Heli. So that's the virgin birth. It's hinted at in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. It's prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. And it's required by the blood curse on the royal lion in Jeremiah 22.30. All by way of review, but I share it with you because it can be very powerfully used. But let's move on. Second Chronicles 36. And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon, the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. And Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. After the first siege, the false prophets tried to get the king to rebel. And Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel in Babylon said, don't do it. Nebuchadnezzar is the hand of God. And they threw Jeremiah in prison because he was a traitor. And they fanned, they got the king on an ego trip, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came and put it down, put a second king in charge. And uh, we get to Zedekiah, and when Zedekiah, same thing. At first, the, you know, the prophet said, come on, we gotta throw, we're, the, we're God's people, we've got to throw Nebuchadnezzar, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar off. Jeremiah said, don't do it, because if you do, God will destroy Jerusalem. And uh, they eventually got him on his ego, tri uh, ego trip, and he uh, reigned 11 years, and then he also rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and you get to the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. By now, Nebuchadnezzar had a belly full of the whole operation. He goes there, and he levels the place. And that's the third siege. Zedekiah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God, humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from the turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief priests... And the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words, misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion upon the young man or maiden or old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all unto his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of the God, and they break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And all them that escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his servants and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. They fulfilled the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, 
For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fill three scores and ten years. This is a very interesting verse, verse 21 here. Why did the southern kingdom go into captivity for exactly 70 years, to the day, to the day? And uh, this was prophesied by Jeremiah. In fact, Daniel, reading Jeremiah's prophecy in Daniel chapter 1, goes to prayer, and that leads to the whole 70 weeks vision of Daniel 9. But why 70 years? And the answer, of course, is because this is exactly what Leviticus required. You go to Leviticus 25. Here's what God said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses in the Mount of Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. There's a Sabbath for man. Six days you work, seventh you rest. There's a Sabbath for the land. Seven years you plow it, the seventh you let the land rest. That's called a sabbatical year. Six years shalt thou sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be... But, but in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. That which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest, thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. It's very interesting that in today, in Israel, they get around this by selling the land to an Arab, and at the end of the year, buying it back, leaving him a small profit for the dodge. That way they're not doing it, it's those guys, see? Typical, you know, loophole-seeking thing. But in any case, so that incidentally is, uh, okay, that's the, okay, so we have five kings that are the good guys, just to refresh here. We've gone through all these kings from, uh, from, from the Civil War under Rehoboam on down, Abijah. Asa and Jesphat, good guys. Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah, the, the queen, uh, bad news. Joash, good guy. Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, bad news. Hezekiah, great guy, one of the best. Manasseh, the worst. And Josiah, good kid. And then these last four guys finally plunge it into captivity. Get to 2 Chronicles 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, now before I get to this, I might remind you, this is a place where you might want to read Daniel 5. Belshazzar in Babylon is in charge. The Persians are on the horizon. Instead of defending, he's convinced that his place is invincible, so he throws a party for a thousand of his nobles. And during that party, the shrewd general, Babylonian general, diverts the Euphrates River so the water drops and his troops slip in under the gates and take over the place. And uh, that's the fall of Babylon. While all this is going on in the party, the fingers of a man's hand right on the wall, you know the story, very exciting time. Ten days after conquering Babylon, Cyrus makes his big entrance. Daniel presents him a copy of Isaiah, a letter written to him 150 years before he was born by Isaiah. And it calls him by name, describes his career, and says, because... I, of this you'll know that I'm the God of these people, and you'll let them go. And he does. He does. And so this is a proclamation that Cyrus says, Thus saith Cyrus, the king of Persia, All the kingdom of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. 
Okay, so that's the last thing. Now what this is here, if you go to the London Museum, this is a replica, not the original, obviously. But uh, this is a replica of the Cylinder of Cyrus. If you go to the London Museum, go take a look at this, and it'll have the translation for you. And that's, this is what this is exactly what he's saying. Because he can brag to the world he did not conquer Babylon, he conquered Babylon without firing a shot, so to speak. He just took it over. And why is that so important? Because the judgment that Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51 describe the judgment on Babylon has never happened. It was conquered but never destroyed the way the Bible talks about. And when you go through all that, you'll discover that Babylon has to reemerge on the world scene to be a major power in order to receive the judgment that God has proclaimed. That's if you take the Bible seriously. But all of this is confirmed by Cyrus himself. If you go to the London Museum, I encourage you to check that out. A good friend of mine by the name of Terry Holt uh, knew I wanted a replica. He went and got one for me, so it's a special gift from him. So where do you go next? Well, you're through the book of Chronicles. So from here, you'd normally go to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which then carry the history of the return after the Babylonian captivity. That's why they believe First Saint Chronicles, Ezra and, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah were all built by the same scribal team, if you will, under the direction of Ezra. But uh, So this should be, could be a natural study next to the return of Israel back to the land under Ezra, uh, trying to build the temple, not getting very far until Nehemiah gets the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that triggers the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, which predicts the exact day that their Messiah would ride that donkey into Jerusalem. Terrific study. But we have one session left. We've done 15 sessions. We've got a 16th session to add a little addenda to your study of, of uh, First and Second Chronicles. A provocative addenda. The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. All kinds of fanciful books written. All kinds of strange stories. Where are they today? Are they around anywhere? Do they have a destiny? And is that destiny alluded to in the Word of God? That's the question, and we'll take a look at that in the next session. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music